0: and definitely check out those shows as well. Alexandra Horowitz is the author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. This was guest hosted by Juliana Goldman of Mama Dunn. Alexandra observes dogs for a living. Her research began more than two decades ago, studying dogs at play, and continues today at her dog cognition lab at Barnard College. She is the author of Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know, and three other books, including On Looking, Being a Dog, and Are Dogs Ourselves? She lives with her family of Homo sapiens, Canis familiaris, and Felis catus in New York City.
2: Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us about this book and why you wrote it.
3: This book is a little bit of a scientific memoir of the first year of a puppy, our puppy's life. I am not only a dog researcher, a dog scientist, but, you know, I've lived with dogs all my life. But I'd never known a dog from the beginning of her life, from the very first days of her life. And anyone who gets a dog later in their life, if it's months or years later, I think we all wonder, what was it like? you know, what is responsible for the personality that we see now or the problems that we see now? I wish I could go back there, you know, and see their puppiness. So here I did. I started from the beginning. So you detail the birth, right
2: Which was like it was beautiful. I had never really I felt like I was along for the ride and seeing how long the actual birth process takes. How calm the (laughs) female dog is. Tell she just gets to work, right? Yeah, I I do do feel like
3: the female dogs I observed giving birth because I watched a couple of litters. You know, looked initially a little puzzled about what was happening, and then they're down to business. They're professionals right away, and you know, a human can help them. A person can be there assisting, and sometimes that is helpful. But really. They are responsible for not just birthing these pups. In our, in this case, the case of the litter from which I adopted a puppy later, she delivered about a puppy every hour and she had 11 puppies. So she births them, she pulls them over to her, she eats the placenta, she licks them so they start breathing. She gets them into a posture so that they can nurse. And then all the while keeping track of the other 10 who are... <laughs> Who are there at her belly? So it's extraordinary, and it is really moving to see. It's a sort of a result of our current way of dealing with and living with dogs that we rarely see births of dogs unless we're breeding dogs or mm-hmm. accidentally, you know, wound up with a dog who got pregnant. And a hundred years ago, that probably wouldn't have been the case. Two hundred years ago, definitely not. You know, people were there for. The early days of their puppies' lives. And so it was spectacular to see.
2: What is more formative? That first period of a dog's life when they're with their their litter, or the period kind of when they're
3: when they're taken away? My answer is going to be a little unsatisfying, which is both are <laughs> most formative. <laughs> I mean, both are formative insofar as that early time in their life when they're with their mom and their litter. They go through these extraordinary changes from being a blind, deaf dog who can't uh, move at all, basically, or regulate their own body temperature or relieve themselves voluntarily to several weeks on, gamboling about following each other around. And there's an early socialization period, which is really critical for them forming a kind of robust equanimity when they face whatever they're going to face in their life. But then, when they do wind up coming into a human home where there might not be other dogs as models, sort of to show you what to do or how to be a dog, and the human home is already completely set up, right and arranged, and so ordinary for us people, but extraordinary for the pup, that also can be a moment, depending on how they're incorporated into the family, which is really determines what their future is going to be like with that particular family or with people generally. So they're both influential.
2: And we think about like one to seven in terms of the ratio of human years to dog years, but that's not really accurate when we're talking about those first couple of months, right?
3: Yeah. When I was writing my first book, Inside of a Dog, I went into a deep dive about where that one to seven ratio came from. And as far as I could tell, it's kind of a back extrapolation from the fact that our average lifetime is 75 or so years and dogs was about 10 years but as you suggest and future research has shown that they actually rapidly age so that the first year of their life might be considered equivalent to about 30 years in a person's life right and then they slow down 30 30 30 or 30 30, not not zero three (laughs) 30 right their bodies develop so rapidly and they're ahead of their brains really they're kind of like 30 year old adolescents and so you can as you can imagine right like full of potential but also not completely in control of themselves Mm -hmm. and then they really slow down in their developments of the last years of their life they're aging kind of at the rate that we age One of the fascinating questions that you tried to answer was
2: whether or not once they left the litter and even like months or weeks or even years, I think later, do they recognize their siblings? Because that's a question uh, we had with our dog. We bought our our dog when he was a puppy and, you know, we chose between him and his sister. And we always said we should have also bought, Mm. we, we should have also brought home his sister. What did you find
3: out? Well, these pups were separated at about nine weeks from each other and from their mom. And then they were reunited later, right? And I saw no signs of recognition Mm -hmm. of their siblings. So, you know, some people say to me, I feel so guilty that I took this puppy away from her mom, for instance, but mom is done with the puppies at that point. Yeah, that was so interesting how the mom begins that process. Yeah, she is part of not just helping them survive in the first weeks, but then helping them become independent. Yeah. And, you know, if we remember also dogs, female dogs could have a litter twice a year. They're fertile twice a year. So frankly, you know, evolutionarily, they're ready to almost go into another round potentially. And they have to get these litters, this litter out from under them. They're taking a lot of resources from her. So- that's part of their learning to be independent. Now, that isn't to say they wouldn't in some distant way have like a memory of each other. And there has been research that shows that both the mom and the litters, if they're given a blanket with the scent mm-hmm. of, you know, the mom's young or the litters siblings or, or mom, they will prefer that. They'll prefer to lie on it than a blanket with the scent of a dog they don't know. But when you when they see each other in person, if they've only been together in person, in dog, if they've only been together for the first nine weeks of their life, there doesn't seem to be a lot of recognition. You call this a scientific memoir. And I want to talk about
2: your own experience through writing this and the relationship that you forged with, with Quid, Quiddy, Quiddy, go through all the names and nicknames. (laughs) nicknames. (laughs) But you say that at one point in the book, you write that, that the dogs are the best teacher of all. What did you learn about yourself through through this process.
3: You know, I thought that since I adore dogs in general, I've had I had I was living at the time with several dogs who I adored and admired that it would be easy for me to add another dog to this fray. And it really wasn't. You know, it took a long time for me to fall in love with her, I think. Partly I think because I was scrutinizing her so much, right? This dog scientist in me was observing her very carefully, maybe over carefully and looking at behaviors that I thought might be harbingers of future behaviors. My husband and son just loved her right away. You know, they had more of like that pure visceral experience, but I stayed a little bit distant from it. And it I do think that that is the case for many people. You shouldn't expect that this dog will come into your life and then just instantly they're part of your family, right? Instantly, you're responsible for them and they start looking to you for how the world's going to run. But that doesn't mean that the bond is always instant. And so I did wind up writing about that and I hadn't expected to feel that way, frankly, but I've gotten some nice feedback that people felt reassured that even a dog scientist was not confident that I'd made the right choice. (laughs) Do you think you purposefully tried not to get too close? No, I would love to have been completely head over heels for her. Mm -hmm. I think that in retrospect, what I saw was that our two other dogs, Finnegan and Upton, were older. They were about 12 when we also adopted Quid. And in some ways, having a puppy around, you know, rejuvenated them. But in other ways, it felt like her vitality was matched by especially Finnegan's diminishment of his life and, you know, suddenly quick decline toward the end of his life. And I I just adored Finnegan. Finnegan is in all my other books. Mm-hmm. He, you know, has been this long-time companion and was just like the perfect, charming sweet dog, the way you know, some yeah. people feel about that. No, I see,
2: I see you tearing up right now just talking yeah. about it. Oh, it, it was <laughs> and we
3: lost him this January oh. and I wrote an obituary for him as well. And I think that actually uh, and then Upton died a month later and Quid was two after both of them passed. It was a lot easier to look at quid and say, Oh, I really appreciate you for who you are, right? And I think that simple sentiment, appreciating for who they are, mm-hmm. is what sometimes stands in the way from people really getting along with the dog in their house, right? They they're behaving badly. They're energetic when we want them to be quiet and quiet when we want them to be energetic. But we really have to see that this is the dog we have, you know, their individual personalities and try to find some middle ground with that you alluded to some of quids behaviors
2: that you were concerned were indicative of like future issues and that is definitely the dog owner not the dog scientist hat that you were yeah. wearing. what were some of those like can you give an example of one of those behaviors that the dog scientist and you would have said like no that doesn't that that's right. not
3: necessarily a, a, a bad sign for the future. Sure, I have a perfect one, which is yeah. that she was really barky. She would bark at all the things, you know, the new thing, the sound she hears, the squirrels she wanted to chase. She just expressed herself by barking and she had a very shrill bark. You know, I've lived with dogs who don't bark at all. And that's pretty useful if you live in New York City, for instance, as I do. And on the other hand, if you look at it as a scientist, which I can do at the same time, I mean, I kind of hold these two things in in my head at once, you know, barking is just a communication. Mm-hmm. And she was always telling us something. And if I had just looked at it as a way that she was saying to us, listen, there's something outside. Listen, I'm excited, right? Listen, I'm alone. Then then you see, okay, right? That's all that is. I'm not going to, certainly not going to scold you for trying to communicate. In fact, bark's probably evolved in dogs as dogs attempts to communicate with humans because wolves don't bark and barks are right at the same frequency range as speech. So I'd be ignoring the very thing that actually might be her attempt to talk to me about.
2: And I also thought it was fascinating because like many others, you adopted a dog during the pandemic. So this is a pandemic puppy. And, And you talk about how some of the things that you would normally do with a puppy, like taking them for a walk and hearing people like coo over, oh my God, that's the cutest dog. And like, that makes up for some of these other behavioral issues. Um, right. They like go hand in hand and you didn't, you weren't able to have that.
3: Yeah. And I actually think that that's, a, yeah. it's a great pleasure of having a dog in a city is that there are so many other people and dogs, right? And the dog is an extension of yourself. Yeah. There's community um, so- in it. Yeah, some, somehow I think that we often think of me included, you know, the compliment of our dog as a as a per compliment, a personal compliment. Of right? course it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I we had none of that. We were you know, if we were anywhere near other people, this was peak pandemic. They moved away from us, right? And so we missed that and more important, we missed continued socialization and a lot of people with pandemic puppies miss continual socialization where She could just get used to encountering new things, new people, new dogs, new cats, new sounds, fire trucks, bicycles, whatever. So we wound up having to, you know, very assiduously go out and find places where she could be socialized and have encounters with lots of things. And that helped a huge amount. But it wasn't just a matter of course. We had to do it
1: really intentionally. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Is
3: that one of the things that surprised you while you were working on this? Yeah, well, I certainly didn't anticipate it. You know, I had started the project, as it were, of thinking about getting a puppy for our family and also imagining that I would write about the science of early dog development pre-pandemic, um, and it was just that when the pandemic came, swooped in, we acknowledged it and everything shut down, I was watching one litter and I realized, oh, I bet it's this litter that we're going to adopt a dog from because nobody's going to let me into their house to watch right. the pups grow up. And so I, we had no, nobody, right? We were just like everybody. We had no idea what was coming and certainly didn't think ahead about well, it's going to be difficult to socialize her or what's going to happen when we eventually have to leave her at home and go to work or go to school. And those are the things that everybody was encountering at once. But at least our eyes then, you know, quickly were opened to this because you could see in her behavior – how she was just accustomed to just us, right? Got used to just being around the family and Mm -hmm. she was gonna need exposure to those other things. I love it. It's like dog
2: cognition scientists, they're just like us.
3: Exactly. Well, they really are. They've just spent more time like watching slow motion videotapes of dogs behaving <laughs> maybe than you have. Yeah. I love you say at one point, if I can say there's any
2: difficulty involved in being a dog cognition researcher, and really there is not. <laughs> it's simply that we can be too close to our subjects to see them well. Once we start thinking, we know what we will see. We stop seeing and the science stops. We need to be agnostic, not ready to feel certain that we know what a dog means by a gesture or what they might do next.
3: Yeah, I love that you highlight that. I think that just like everybody who lives with dogs, even as a scientist, you have expectations uh, or kind of assumptions about what the dog is doing or what they're about to do or who they are. And the best posture you can take really in both positions is to be a little agnostic and let them show you for themselves. What's your, after going through this and writing
2: about it and studying yourself, through raising a puppy, having other dogs like what is your advice now your cheat sheet for people
3: as they um they bring a puppy into their home well first you don't have to get a puppy you know it's also <laughs> really nice to get an older dog <laughs> I would say come in expecting that they won't be who you think they'll be come in with fewer expectations and come in realizing that there is no, set of tricks or things that you can teach them that's going to make them miraculously understand what it's like to live in a human household. And that's going to make them bond with you immediately. You know, they're going through an early part of their life, puppyhood, adolescence, being a teenager. And once you realize that those phases are happening, it's a lot easier to just, you know, shepherd them through it as opposed to being concerned that they're not perfect yet, they're not doing all the behaviors we want yet. Be patient, essentially.
2: Can you tell us about the dog cognition lab at Barnard? What exactly exactly is it? What is it? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well, I started doing research into dog behavior with an interest in trying to find out what they know or understand when I was a graduate student. And when I came to Barnard after grad school, I was still doing small experiments with dogs, and these are behavioral experiments where basically you show them things and ask which one they choose, for instance, or point at one or the other and see if they follow your point. Simple experiments, sort of like games for the dogs. And... I'd also gotten really interested in the fact that we as dog owners seem to know all, all about what dogs know and understand, right? <laughs> as though there doesn't need to be a science. So I was testing our assumptions, too. And then there were students who wanted to work with me. You know, there was no such thing as a dog cognition lab. When I started, I think I started the first one in, in North America. When did you start it? 2008. Yeah, no. If if it had been there when I was a student at Barnard, I definitely would (laughs) have. Yeah, it is a little bit on the QT because it's not like we're keeping dogs there. These are. It's basically just a room where dogs and their people can come and participate in one of these little studies with us, um, and then they leave at the end of the day. In fact, dogs are not allowed on Barnard's campus. Our dogs are have an exception. They're research dogs. (laughs) I love it. And at the end, they get a little certificate, a certificate of dogness for completion of the <laughs> studies. Uh, and it's it's brilliantly fun. And it's really great that there's so many local dog owners who are interested in, in working with us.
2: And how did you tap into this passion of yours? How did you get into it initially?
3: It was pretty accidental. I didn't go to grad school thinking I was going to study dog behavior or mind at all. Although I lived with dogs, I thought mm-hmm. the only way to think about dogs professionally was to be a veterinarian, basically. And I wasn't that hot on being a veterinarian, but I was interested in cognitive science. I was interested in knowing about others' minds, and that included non-human animal minds. And then it wound up that dogs were just a great subject to study because I was studying play behavior. And guess what? They're playing all the time, right? I got a huge amount of data and was able to show a little bit of how they were sensitive to each other's attentional states in play, which is a kind of sophisticated cognitive ability. And then just dogs stuck. Once you realize you can study this species and they're widely available. Um, And also I knew that the science was affecting and improving my relationship with my own dogs. I just stuck with it, but I didn't have any foreknowledge that this was going to happen. Well, it's
2: so fun to talk to somebody who's so passionate about the line of work that they're in. And even just having this conversation, I can see your face beaming and like
3: smiling just as you talk about it. So it's contagious, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, what? I mean, other scientists come in this field, you know, I do I do hear from a lot of young students who are interested in this science and I'm like, this is great. You know, this is, you. you have your passion and you have a scientific method and the two of them can meet with this study subject. What do you think is the most misunderstood trait of dogs? I do think we still treat them a little bit as, as furry humans. So as you know, I'm very keen on the olfactory prowess of dogs and talking about how actually it's not just that they have a good nose, that they can smell some things that we can't, but it's a profoundly different way of seeing the world, Yeah, that they're seeing the world through smell. And that kind of redefines... Everything about their experience, you know, they recognize us by smell, they recognize each other by smell. They're seeing what happened on the street before they even got to the street because it's written in smells, right? So I think that's kind of misunderstood. We assume that because they're sitting alongside us on the sofa, they kind of are in on it with us, right? They know exactly what's happening. I don't think I'm gonna get this
2: totally right, but there was like a statistic in your previous book that talked about. Was it like if you poured a cup of salt into a pool, they could smell, was was it a cup or was it? Um,
3: It was two teaspoons of sugar. Two two teaspoons of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Right, right. They would be able to detect the sugar in that pool. Right. Their acuity, their olfactory acuity is very, very strong for so many substances. Not for, I mean, some, we have perfectly good noses. If we stuck our nose in things and really sniffed, we would smell a lot more things than we do but they're smelling this constantly they have a way of like circular breathing so that they're they're never kind of getting the smells out of their nose as we often want to do on a new mm-hmm. york city street in the summer <laughs> and so that's the way they see the world and i think that's not completely understood and in fact you know even as a scientist i'm still trying to make sense of what that means for them in terms of their understanding of time and each other.
2: Mm -hmm. That's just such a completely different sensory experience going through life in a different kind of way.
3: Absolutely. Um, And I think that there has been this interesting side effect of the pandemic of COVID in particular, which it took a lot of people's smell temporarily. And people got very aware of the fact that it's not just we're smelling our food or you smell the odor of the gas having been left on. It's that, you know, we recognize each other a little bit by smell and rooms have a smell and you have expectations for what it smells like in the spring. And this kind of information, I think, is is what dogs deal in. And I love trying to get a glimpse of that. Do you know if dogs ever lost that sense when they got covid I don't know. Well, very few dogs did, as far as I know, get uh-huh. COVID. But I haven't heard of dogs being anosmic, losing their sense of smell. But then again, we're not usually testing them for that. Right. Right? you know. So it would be interesting to meet a dog without a sense of smell. I'd be curious about how that affects their behavior. I mean, mm-hmm. their vision is fine. Their hearing is fine. So it's not like they're without bearings. Mm-hmm. But I haven't ever met an anosmic dog. You know, that's like a new line of research you're opening up for me.
2: <laughs> is that going to be your next
3: book? <laughs> well, I mean, I would love to know about it for sure. Yeah. So what is what is next And Actually, I'm writing about animals more broadly, animals like kind of on the margin of our societies that we sometimes don't look at as closely as we could, but are really important to our society that even like um, pest animals, for instance. So the modern the state of the modern animal in society bringing the same gaze that i brought to dogs to to other animals
2: and are you doing that research at barnard yep amazing all right so for people who want to learn more or if they have specific
3: questions do people reach out to you or sure like, yeah you know, i have a website net that has a lot of information about me and there's a site I am ubiquitous on the web, I'm afraid, and I, uh, you know, Barnard has a under the psychology department. There's information about some of my research. There's a dog cognition lab at Barnard website. So, absolutely. And if you're in the vicinity and you want to participate in studies with your dog, sign up for our mailing list, and we'll notify you when we have a study.
2: Awesome. Well, Alexandra Horowitz, thank you so much for the time, and highly, highly recommend the Year of the Puppy and also other works by by Alexandra.